0: If you've been following the news recently, you might have come across a new class of drug. New medication could be about to revolutionise weight loss treatments.
1: Hollywood has a new quote-unquote
0: miracle drug. A potentially game-changing drug that may help some people lose weight. This sounds pretty amazing. Pretty astonishing. They've just been approved for use in some parts of Britain.
2: Some were thrilled today when it was announced that a new weight loss drug, one that's been described as a game changer, will now be available on the NHS in England.
0: The drugs have been making news in America, and in particular, the image conscious Hollywood, for a few years now.
1: The US is seeing a rise in the popularity of weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi. The increase is being driven by celebrities in those viral social media videos showing dramatic weight loss transformations.
3: It's the jab stars say helps them to stay slim. Billionaire Elon Musk claims to use it. So does Jeremy Clarkson. And Kim Kardashian
0: is rumoured to as well. A new generation of drugs that can help people lose weight have taken the world by storm. Analysts estimate the market for these drugs could exceed $150 billion per year by 2031. And they could also spell the beginning of the end for obesity. Obesity is already a huge public health problem around the world, and it's getting worse. Half of the world's population is expected to be overweight or obese by 2035. With obesity come life-threatening complications that can affect many of the body's organ systems – everything from type 2 diabetes to liver disease or cardiovascular problems. Being overweight can also have a significant effect on mental health. Obesity is a medical condition, but it's not often been treated like one. Could the new weight loss drugs turn the tide against this global threat? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll explore the causes of the global epidemic of Obesity. How much of it is due to our individual genetics and neurobiology? And how much of it is down to the world in which we live today, where food is abundant and often very highly processed? We'll also examine how the very significant public health burden of obesity can be reduced, and what role new medications can really play. Being obese or overweight is formally defined as having abnormal or excessive fat accumulation that may impair health. A doctor would tell you that you're obese if your body mass index, or BMI, is greater than or equal to 30. Overweight is defined as a BMI of 25 or over. BMI is a ratio calculated from a person's weight and height. But it's only a rough guide because many factors can influence how much a person weighs. To understand the impacts of obesity on both personal and public health, I spoke to Louise Bauer. Obesity certainly is a disease when you're looking at people with
1: higher BMI who've got health consequences.
0: Louise is the president of the World Obesity Federation. She's also a professor of paediatrics at the University of Sydney in Australia. It's got a very strong
1: biological basis and for some people it can be very severe. I see obesity as a physiological response to a pathological environment. We respond physiologically. Our ancient genes make it easy for us to put on excess weight in our current world. We're designed to store food for a rainy day and the world we live in now is not a healthy environment. How
0: big is obesity as a problem?
1: If we consider BMI greater than 25, so overweight and obesity at a population level, then in 2020, that was 38% of the world's population. And in 2035, we estimate it will be 50%.
0: Okay, that's quite a significant number of people. That's quite a quick advance as well. What specific countries or regions of the world can you identify that are most problematic on this front? Some of the countries with the highest prevalence are actually
1: small island developing states. So at the moment, many of the Pacific Island countries and the Caribbean countries in particular have many people living with overweight and obesity and consequences related with high BMI. But we can also look at countries with large populations such as China or India, Indonesia, many of the South American countries, as they go through their process of, in inverted commas, westernisation, where there's this nutrition transition that's occurring and where we've also seen changes in the way in which people move. So we've gone from lives where people walked or cycled or were actually reasonably physically active for much of the day to lives now where we're very sedentary most of the time. And that includes in many middle-income countries. We've seen rapid changes in urbanisation motor vehicle transport, and so on. Those things have happened over the last few decades, and they're happening in
0: middle-income countries as well as high-income countries. Can you talk to me a bit about the secondary impact of obesity? We think about obesity as weight, of course, but what else happens if you become obese?
1: Well, the excess body fat accumulation, which is essentially what obesity is, can cause metabolic changes because you get fat distribution in places that they shouldn't be in your liver, in muscle, other parts of your body. And you can also get mechanical problems. So we see obesity or high BMI as a risk for the development of type two diabetes. We can also see fatty liver disease and that has become a risk factor for the development of further liver disease and in fact in some cirrhosis but we can see osteoarthritis hip problems knee problems because of increased weight on those joints obstructive sleep apnea where people may need to have cpap or other forms of treatment to help because they've got fat accumulation in their airways which becomes a problem when they go to sleep at night and uh, in fact obesity can affect almost any organ system
0: And what about the impacts that obesity might be having on a person's mental health?
1: A lot of people living with obesity feel very stigmatised. It's one of those diseases, if I look at a person, I can see if they are a higher weight. If I look at lots of other people, I can't tell if they have a particular disease or anything like that. Um, I can't tell if they have a sexually transmitted disease if I look at them, for example, but I can tell if someone has obesity. Both of those problems can be stigmatised, but the people with obesity experience the stigma very, very frequently, and that is a very negative common problem for that. Uh, We can see a lot of mental health problems too. Depression and anxiety can be related to the development of obesity, and
0: obesity itself can potentiate that, so you can get a bit of a vicious cycle happening. Can you also then tell me what kind of public health challenge obesity presents?
1: In fact, the World Health Organization on its website talks about it as an epidemic. The word can be rather confronting. And the last thing you want to do is to make people feel incredibly alarmed and helpless in that process. But what we mean is that it's affecting a large number of people, that it has a lot of consequences, and that unchecked, it's going to be more of an issue over the next few years and they can have very long-term consequences and they can have very significant economic impacts and they can affect an individual's life quite profoundly.
0: Can you give me an idea of how much obesity costs to society, not just the disease itself, but also any secondary effects?
1: The most significant impacts of a high BMI are impacts on economic productivity with people not being able to be in the workforce as long, so absenteeism, people having reduced productivity when they are at work, so that's presenteeism, and also premature retirement or death. So if we look at global economic impact of obesity in 2020, so this is in US dollars, in trillions, that was 1.96. And in 2035, it's estimated to be 4.32 trillion US dollars. Now, that in 2020 was 2.4% of gross domestic product, and in 2035 that's estimated to be 2.9%. So that was about the impact of COVID as a percentage of GDP. So it's a significant issue. It's, it costs, and it costs in lots of different ways. We need to take it seriously.
0: If you want to tackle the problem of excess weight, you need to understand exactly what causes it. For a long time there's been a rather lazy assumption that obesity is some sort of choice that a person makes. Your body size, according to this theory, is a product of your own willpower, the choices you make about your diet and how much exercise you do. But Louise mentioned that the condition, at least in some part, has a biological basis. Someone who knows a lot about this is Stefan Guillenet. Stefan was a researcher in the neuroscience of obesity. And in 2017, he wrote a book called The Hungry Brain.
4: I think that body weight does relate a lot to behaviors, but I think where people sometimes go wrong is they assume our behaviors are all just a product of conscious control and willpower. So for example, hunger is not something that we choose to experience. That's something that just arises out of brain regions that are doing their own non-conscious processing and deciding that they want you to eat food. And similarly, when we experience a craving, those are not conscious choices, but those are things that have a strong influence over our eating behavior.
0: So just to put a point on that. I mean, people, when they want to lose weight, I mean, often count calories, for example, or they will try and make sure that, you know, they do more exercise than they consume. Is that approach to managing weight misguided?
4: Well, I think it's theoretically sound. Let me put it that way. I mean, if you consume fewer calories, you will lose weight. But the problem is that people have a hard time reducing calories by enough and sticking with it over long periods of time, particularly the latter. So, one thing that a lot of people aren't commonly aware of is that appetite and body fatness are regulated by the brain. And so, if you try to reduce your calorie intake over the long run, you're going to be having to push against these regulatory systems that are making you more hungry that are making you more interested in food that might be cutting back on your metabolic rate and you're going to have to be fighting against these impulses essentially indefinitely.
0: Why would your brain be fighting against your desire to eat less then? What what is the brain doing at a conscious and subconscious level to to push back?
4: Yeah, so essentially what happens, you know, if you think about our evolutionary context, humans for almost all of our existence lived in a situation where food was harder to come by than it is today. And if you think about the things that the brain responds to in terms of pleasure responses and dopamine responses, they're predominantly food properties associated with calories, things like carbohydrate, fat, protein. And the reason is that, you know, not getting enough calories, potentially starvation or potentially just not having enough calories to fight off infections or to have children was a major driver of natural selection in the time of our ancestors and unfortunately that regulatory system it adapts as we gain fat such that the higher level of body fatness is the new normal so you have someone with obesity that regulatory system is going to enter starvation mode when they try to lose weight even if they still have a lot of fat on their body after weight loss that is a coordinated behavioral, and physiological response intended to regain the body fat. So you get things that push toward higher calorie intake, like more hunger, more interest in food, more cravings, and then you get responses that reduce calorie expenditure by curtailing your metabolic rate. What you've said
0: just really does explain a lot of the problems people have, even if they try very, very hard to lose weight by calorie restriction. It kind of explains very clearly, why it's so difficult. Tell me more about the way that modern food drives the dopamine response more. And just for background as well, what does the dopamine response
4: in the brain do? Dopamine is a neurochemical that is intimately involved in motivation and learning. And especially we're talking about learning cravings, like really visceral motivations. Like you smell the brownies and you get this craving motivational response to eat the brownies. That's what dopamine is doing. And so our brains are hardwired to experience dopamine responses to specific food properties. People don't usually get really excited about celery sticks and lentils. They have strong cravings toward things like ice cream and and cookies and chips and that sort of thing. And those foods have more of those properties so things like concentrated fat concentrated carbohydrate including starch and sugar especially combinations of carbohydrate and fat salt and glutamate which is that uh, meaty umami flavor in certain types of foods and so especially in modern processed foods we've essentially figured out you know what are the quote-unquote active ingredients in food that stimulate dopamine, and we can extract those and recombine them into extremely seductive foods that are probably a lot more seductive than what our ancestors would have habitually eaten and kind of outside of the normal range of what our brains evolved with.
0: And so just as a reminder, these things that are concentrated in processed foods, the signals for fat and umami, as you say, all of the other things, these are normally signals for the brain that there are calories here and you should consume them because you might not get calories elsewhere. But they've just been concentrated to make them more addictive in sort of modern foods.
4: Yeah, yeah, to make them more seductive. And I will say that salt is the one thing that I think has been pretty clearly demonstrated to be reinforcing, but is not a source of calories. So that's kind of an exception. But the other things that I think have been either demonstrated or strongly suspected to cause this dopamine response are all signals of the calorie density of the food.
0: Okay. What about a genetic component to things like weight gain? How much of that is an influence in how much weight somebody gains or how obese they might become.
4: Yeah, genetics is very important. And I think it's very misunderstood too. So obesity is a gene by environment interaction. And what that means is that in a person who is genetically susceptible, a fattening environment will cause them to develop obesity. A person who's not genetically susceptible, fattening environment will not cause them to develop obesity so it's an interaction you need both the environment and the genetic susceptibility to produce the obesity and if we look at modern populations like in the UK or in the US the studies that have been done those studies suggest that somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 80 percent of the differences in body fatness between individuals are genetically determined so it's a very strong influence on body fatness And if we further look at what the genes are, what we see is that the genetics are very complex. There are many, many genes contributing, just a small amount, and those genes are predominantly related to brain activity, to how the brain is constructed and how the brain runs after it's constructed.
0: While genetics can determine whether or not someone is at risk of becoming obese, A crucial factor in all of this is, unsurprisingly, food. As Stefan said, that's the biggest thing that's changed in human society in recent years, whether it's how much we eat or how our brains actually react to what we put in our mouths. But it doesn't end there. There are a number of other reasons why we need to think harder about what we actually put on our plates.
2: We're now very confident that the primary cause of pandemic obesity is the consumption and marketing of ultra-processed food. And that accounts for probably more than 90% of pandemic
0: obesity. Chris Van Tuliken is an infectious disease doctor at University College London. He's also just written a book on the modern diet called Ultra-Processed People.
2: Humans have been processing food for more than two million years. The second you cut meat off a mammoth with a flint knife, you're processing. Cooking is processing. Bread is 30,000 years old. Cheese is 6,000 years old. So processing is ancient. It isn't associated with diet-related disease. Ultra-processing, the generations of food products that are intimately linked to financialized growth and profit, those are the foods that cause the problems. And you'll find foods within the ultra-processed food category that are very obvious. So all of our sort of standard junk food is ultra-processed. But then All of our supermarket bread is also ultra-processed. It's engineered in ways that drive excess consumption. It boils down to this. If it's wrapped in plastic and it contains an ingredient that you don't normally find in a domestic kitchen, like an emulsifier or a preservative or a humectant, then it is ultra-processed food. And some of them have become extremely edible to the point where I think describing them as addictive is a very scientifically reasonable thing to do.
0: So, just going back to that supermarket bread, then, what makes an ultra processed supermarket loaf different to, let's say, a sourdough loaf you get down your baker?
2: the six pound sourdough that I now feel compelled to buy from my local (laughs) delicatessen. So it's ultra processed because it meets the definition. It contains uh, ingredients you don't find in a domestic kitchen and it is produced in a way using processes that you also don't find domestically. It's not traditional. The way it's made is sourdough bread is just really uh, wheat, wild yeast cultures, salt and water. And if you bite into a piece of your sourdough loaf, you'll find it takes you a very long time to chew it, process it in your mouth, and then to digest it. It leaves you feeling full for a long time. And that textural property of the bread is really, really important when it comes to how your body handles it. By contrast, a loaf of supermarket bread, you can eat five slices in the same period of time. They just dissolve in your mouth. And this has several important effects. You deliver the nutrients in the bread, the fat and the the protein and the carbs, extremely quickly into the gut, and they're absorbed very quickly, Probably before a fullness signal is allowed to leave the gut and reach the brain and tell you to stop eating. Then the emulsifiers in the bread will act like detergent in your gut, scrubbing out your microbiome. Then the preservatives in your bread will further destroy your microbiome. The flavoring in the bread will lead you to eat more of it than you otherwise would. And so there are all these different mechanisms which put together make the food very, very palatable and appealing but all of which together create food that is nearly impossible to stop eating and harms us in other ways aside from obesity.
0: So what I'm hearing is that it's not only the fact that ultra-processed foods are designed in such a way that people will just keep eating more and more of them. So you just ingest more calories in the first place. So that's what step one to becoming more obese. But then also the other products and ingredients within them can confuse your normal digestive systems and bodily systems which kind of exacerbate the problem further and then that leads in the long term to more obese people. I mean I'm just curious what else is there to show that this is the case that's quite a striking claim against a food system that has been developed for many decades now and is feeding more and more people so you could argue that at least more people are getting fed but obviously you're arguing that they're getting fatter as a result.
2: You raised two really important points. First of all, the big problem facing all the scientists who've investigated this category of ultra-processed food has been, isn't this food just high in fat, salt, and sugar, and low in fiber? So that's always the accusation the food industry says: oh, oh, we're just gonna take out those ingredients, replace them with sweeteners, replace the fats with gums, and reduce the salt, and replace it with potassium salts, and then the food will become healthy. And what we find is whether you are looking at deaths from cancer, rates of obesity, rates of inflammatory bowel disease, dementia, any of the problems that we're sure that ultra-processed food causes, all of the epidemiological studies, almost without exception, have done statistical adjustments for nutritional profile, i.e. fat, salt, sugar, fiber, but also for dietary pattern. And we are very sure it is the ultra-processed quality of the food that is important, not the fat, salt, and sugar. The second thing you said is, isn't it great that people are getting fed? In the UK, we have some of the highest rates of childhood obesity in the world. We also have some of the shortest children in Europe. Obesity is a form of malnutrition, and it coexists with stunting and may in fact cause stunting. And that is one of the, the other arguments that confuses everyone is saying, well, how come people who say they can't afford food put on so much weight. And it's because the only food that people with low incomes can afford is food that is addictive and drives obesity, and they have no choice but to buy it.
0: Chris, as you were listing those foods... I was thinking oh, I'm going to have to get rid of everything in my cupboards. I mean, I, I thought I was I was good at trying not to buy things that were not too well processed, but um, I think that I'm not going to have anything left in my cupboards at this rate. And I, <laughs> I don't buy the six pounds either. Um, I just wonder then, what do we do about all of this? How do we fix this problem?
2: So I have a very clear action plan that I'm working on. I'm speaking with a group at UCL. We're speaking to government. We're speaking to WHO, and we're building a strong evidence base. The first thing is to put this in the national guidelines, and the evidence is good enough to do that now. Then we have to label ultra-processed food, and that's not a trivial thing to do, but we can certainly label whole food as being good for you. And then we need to figure out clever ways of labeling individual products that won't embroil us in endless lawsuits with the food industry. And then finally, there may be a few taxes on products, although we're a long way from that. And it needn't cost the food industry any money, really. The most regulated industries like the pharmaceutical industry, the tobacco industry, is still extremely profitable. So industry is very resilient. And behind closed doors, I've spoken to dozens of people who work in the food industry, and they all say, we know we are making addictive products. We would love to stop. But in order to stop, we have to have the government create a, a level playing field for us. I think people are deeply sick of the only food that is available to them being food that is really harmful and and drives their obesity. And anyone who has tried to lose weight knows that it is like trying to quit smoking in 1970s Britain, you know, when every office and every plane flight and every restaurant was full of smokers and it would have been impossible for anyone to quit. And we need to change that food environment. I want to be clear I wouldn't ban a single product, not a single one. I'm, I'm not a banner. I don't like nanny state. I want people to have real choice. I want people to be able to afford accessible, healthy food.
0: Changing the way that we think about food is fundamental to slowing the rate of obesity everywhere. But what about the people who struggle with obesity today? We'll explore how this medical condition can be treated and how those new weight loss drugs we mentioned at the start of the show fit in.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months
0: plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Babbage, we're investigating how to tackle obesity. I would never even think about it worst nightmares that, that would be this big losing weight has been an obsession in human society for as long as food has been abundant there was a time not so long ago when TV schedules were filled with programs such as the biggest loser Workout. that was a reality show where participants competed to lose the most weight
3: your current weight is 170
0: in 2022, people around the world spent nearly $250 billion on dieting. But the best scientific evidence suggests that trying to lose weight through diet and exercise alone work for only about 10 or 20% of the population. That's why people have also turned to medical treatments that could also help them lose weight. One of the earliest and most well-known drugs used for weight loss is dinitrophenol, or DNP. It was first used in diet pills during the 1930s. The problem is that it's also thought to have caused some people to lose their sight. In the 2000s though, the drug became popular again, when it was sold on the internet without regulation several more people who used the drug lost their lives. Later in 2023, British authorities will officially classify the drug as a poison.
1: The parents of a young woman in the UK who died after taking a highly toxic chemical compound sold illegally in diet pills are to meet government ministers ahead of it being reclassified as a poison. Campaigners say that tablets containing DNP have been responsible for the deaths of at least 32 vulnerable adults.
0: DNP wasn't the only attempt though. In recent decades, herbal medicines like ephedra have been branded as slimming aids.
3: What was thought to happen was that when ephedra was combined with caffeine, the two stimulants together would speed up your metabolic rate. This was a, a very modest increase in metabolism, but it could result in a modest amount of weight loss. However, Since then, there have been many, many, many reports of adverse reactions, the mildest being insomnia,
1: the worst being death.
0: That was banned in America in 2004. There have also been appetite-suppressing substances. Sibutramine was an example, but that drug was withdrawn from sale around the world amid safety concerns as well.
2: Sibutramine is a prescription
1: appetite suppressant used for patients with obesity, but it was tied to an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes and banned.
0: Drugs aren't the only treatment for obesity though. In some cases, people with the condition can turn to bariatric surgery. That's when a person's stomach and small intestine is rearranged to reduce the amount of food they can absorb. It also accelerates the feeling of being full and satisfied. It can be an effective treatment, and has been proven to reduce some of the health complications associated with obesity. But there are only so many surgeons that can actually do these operations, and it's a risky and expensive procedure. In this environment, the arrival of a new, safe, self-administered weight loss drug when it seems too good to be true. These days, it's the talk of TikTok.
4: I just start dropping pounds left and right.
0: The topic Ozempic has over 300 million views with scores of users crediting the drug for their weight loss success. Ozempic is a drug you inject. Talk show host Chelsea
2: Handler is dishing on Ozempic, the diabetes medication that's widely hailed as a miracle weight loss drug. New drugs are receiving FDA approval for weight loss, while others are used off-label. The popularity of those drugs on social media and in clinics is soaring.
0: someone who's been thinking a lot about the new treatments for obesity that are taking the world by storm is The Economist's health editor, Natasha Loder. Natasha, we said you we were going to give you a break last week, but um, that was a lie, clearly. How are you? Are you OK?
3: I'm really well, thank you. It's great to be back.
0: Now, Natasha, we've just heard about some of the older drugs that have been used to treat weight gain. But can you tell me what the new generation of drugs are all about? Why are they different? Well, these new drugs are known as GLP-1
3: agonists. They are drugs that came from research into type 2 diabetes drugs, as it happens. And some of our listeners may have heard the names Ozempic, ZeMPEC, and even Manjaro. And these are the sorts of drugs that are coming to the market to treat obesity. How do they work? Well, it's very interesting. So they mimic the hormones the body produces naturally after a meal. And they stimulate the release of other hormones, insulin and another, glucagon. And together, these hormones regulate the level of glucose that's in the blood. But on top of that, these GLP-1 agonists also slow down the rate at which food moves through the stomach. So food stays in the stomach for longer and you feel fuller and you want to eat less. And it also affects the hypothalamus, the part of the brain that controls hunger. And so that it effectively just sort of switches off the drive to eat. So when you're dieting, your brain will kind of nag you to eat all the time. And that kind of apparently just gets switched off. And lastly, GLP-1 seems to have an effect on fat too, making the body more likely to break it down, making it more metabolically active.
0: So between those three things that basically tell your body not to eat, I mean, it sounds like a pretty perfect drug in terms of making you eat less. How do you actually take the drugs? I mean, what's the treatment plan?
3: So the drugs arrive in a pack of four pens and they're self-administered injection pens. And you would take a dose just below the skin in your fat, your belly fat, typically once a week, And you're supposed also, this is meant to be quite important, to have a diet as well and an exercise program. So you need to run a calorie deficit. So you need to eat less. But most people actually do want to eat less. In fact, they struggle to eat sometimes right after the dose. People talk about how they have no interest in food at all. The issue with these drugs is that while they're very good for weight loss, there's an outstanding question of how long you need to be on these treatments. And it looks at the moment like you would have to be on them for a lifetime.
0: Can you tell me how well these GLP-1 agonists work? How much weight can somebody expect to lose and over what time?
3: Well, the timescale is about between 40 weeks and 68 weeks, as we heard in the trials. And we're seeing, depending on what drug you're taking, between 10 to 25% average weight loss over that period of time, sometimes as much as 25%. And this is quite extraordinary. I mean, this is almost on a level with bariatric surgery. The big thing is for people who have been obese for much of their lives is that suddenly this drug allows them to lose weight in a way that it just hasn't been possible before.
0: Now, some people who have been commenting on these new generation of drugs, they're saying there's a ethical issue here, which is that is the idea that you can inject your way out of being obese, is it something that's a bit of a problem because it gives you an excuse just to eat more junk food or just increase your consumption because you know you'll be able to just take it all off again eventually afterwards. Now, from what you said, injecting these drugs also makes you actually desire food less, so Perhaps that criticism isn't really valid. What do you think?
3: People are always going to want to moralise about weight because it's had such a stigma attached to it for so long. And actually, funnily enough, these drugs are showing us that there's potentially a medical issue at work here. And I guess my answer to the question is, is the existence of effective treatments for, say, skin cancer, meaning that people are more likely to go out and tan themselves? Well, maybe at some level... Yes, but that doesn't mean that people say, well, should we not invent these drugs in the first place? Will the existence mean that people are less committed to watching their weight? Potentially, I mean, I suppose people might joke to themselves, you know, well, I shouldn't eat that biscuit, but I could always have one of these skinny jabs. I think as we get more familiar with the downsides of these drugs, you know, the side effects and adverse events, the fact that you need to take them for a long time and the fact that you don't want to eat, all these unpleasant things that will be associated with them, people will, I think, not see them quite as a quick fix. And in any case, they really are meant for people who are very, very overweight, very much obese, and who have health effects as a result of that
0: obesity. It is funny with weight gain and obesity in society, isn't it, that we place such a value on thinness and the idea that people should be thin, that the idea of of becoming thin from being obese or, or bigger, people want you to do some hard work to get from one to the other. Rather than realising that obesity and being overweight is a medical condition, as we've talked about in this show, um, it is a medical condition that is difficult to get out of and that drugs therefore becoming available for it is the thing that should be celebrated, actually. Now, if people want to use these drugs for other things... That's something for society to think about, but then drugs are used for all sorts of other off-label reasons anyway, and never mind obesity drugs. So I think it's quite an interesting world that we're entering with these new GLP-1 agonists. You talked about side effects before. What are some of the side effects that we know about? And I suppose we have to keep looking in the future as well for longer-term side effects.
3: So vomiting and diarrhea are really common. In fact, about 3% of people will stop taking these drugs because of these side effects. That's actually not very high, so they're quite well tolerated. But lots of people find it kind of quite unpleasant to take them in the initial days after they've had their jab. There's concerns about a rare type of pancreatitis. Um, It's possible if tens of millions of people are taking them that that could become more common. And animal trials found thyroid cancers. I'm also slightly concerned that women who are taking these drugs may become pregnant. And it's not entirely clear that that's a safe thing to do for an embryo or a fetus. So that's another issue to worry about. And then there's this kind of dependency problem in that if you come off these drugs over a year or so, you're going to put a lot of that weight back on. And then as for long-term effects, well, what happens when you've been taking these drugs for, what, 10, 20 years? Of course,
0: we have no idea. And what about things like cost? At the moment, it doesn't seem like a very cheap treatment. Well, we've seen a range of
3: prices.
0: In America, we've seen list
3: prices of about $1,300 a month for the obesity drug Wegovy, And a diabetes drug, which is similar to Wegovy is being sold for about $900 a month. I don't expect that these are the sorts of prices that will be seen in public health systems. I think public health systems like the UKs will negotiate a cheaper price. We also know that these list prices, when insurers buy these drugs, they also negotiate hefty discounts. So at the moment, you know, people who are buying them out of their own pocket can be paying a lot of money for this. Azempic, which is a diabetes drug, is actually quite affordable in the UK if it's prescribed off-label for weight loss. I've seen private doctors will give you a month's supply for anywhere from about 130 to 175 pounds a month. Obviously, if you're taking that every month in perpetuity, that's a big deal.
0: Let's have a think about the market for these drugs. I mean, there was that estimate wasn't there that by 2031 the global market for these drugs could reach something like $150 billion a year. That's enormous. I mean, it rivals cancer, almost, cancer drugs. But of course, these drugs could also save healthcare systems quite a lot of money in the long run as well, couldn't they?
3: I mean, one of the outstanding questions about how widespread a market there is going to be for this drug is the value that they bring. This is not a drug that's supposed to be given for cosmetic purposes. The idea is is that obesity brings real health risks. But one of the things we're not clear about is to what extent people who are obese get relief from these health risks, these cardiovascular health risks, diabetes and many others. We know that if you're diabetic you do get a benefit from taking the diabetes GLP-1 agonists. So it is being assumed that there will be a benefit to having these in weight loss, but we haven't yet proven that. We will. You know, The NHS recently did a study of the value of these drugs, and it says there's value in them, but only if they're taken for two years. If you start having to take these drugs for a longer period of time they may not be good value for health systems. And so this is the really big unanswered question about how rapidly these drugs are going to be disseminated in public health systems.
0: How do you think that all of this is going to play out then? Do you think that this is the beginning of the end for the obesity epidemic that's spreading across the world?
3: No, I don't. I think governments are still going to have to put a lot of effort into preventing people from getting overweight in the first place. And that's just not something you can ignore. We know that childhood obesity is growing and we absolutely have to do much more to stop it. We can't let this continue to blight childhoods. You could say, well, just let's let people let children get fat and then prescribe these drugs, but that's not moral or ethical. And so governments really do have to do more. Everyone does, companies, food companies, schools. Society at large needs to basically make more effort in... Dealing with what's known as the obesogenic environment, which is an environment that's just full of foods that encourage us to overeat and a sort of real inability to have activity in your daily life. I've been working all day and I can't imagine I've expended more than a couple of hundred calories. And if I want to get exercise, I'm going to have to get it in my spare time. And these are problems, really systematic problems that need to be dealt
0: with. Okay, Natasha, thank you very much for taking me through all of that. Listeners can read all of your reporting on the obesity epidemic and the new class of drugs. That's on the Economist's website and app. Natasha, before I let you go, though, can I ask what else you've been enjoying from the coverage of the Economist this week?
3: Well, I actually wondered if I could give a plug for the piece that we're working on this week. I've been working on a piece with a colleague, Georgia Banjo, on rugby and concussions, and we talked about it in a podcast for Babish a few weeks ago. And that piece is coming out later this
0: week. Fantastic. Well, Babbage listeners will know a bit about that piece, of course, already. So yes, do go ahead and listen to that. And I've been enjoying listening to a special edition of Checks and Balance, which is one of our sister podcasts. The most recent episode explored a Las Vegas murder mystery. We're going into true crime, I think, in The Economist. And it's got an interesting link to climate change too, which is why particularly I think our listeners might find it interesting. I'd encourage everyone to go and check that out. You can find Checks and Balance wherever you get your podcasts. Natasha, thank you very much for joining me and see you again soon. See you soon, Alec. Thanks so much. Our thanks to Louise Bauer, Stefan Gyané and Chris Van Tuliken. Stefan's book is The Hungry Brain and it's out already. Chris's new book, Ultra Processed People, will be published at the end of April. Thank you for listening to this episode of Babbage don't forget that as a Babbage listener, you can get a special introductory subscription rate to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rovast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Anok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.
1: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo
0: Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.